Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Today, we are going back to school, or rather, I guess we're celebrating students, teachers, and parents who are going back to school, many of whom are headed back online. You know, when I think back uh, to my school years so, so long ago, not actually that long ago, um, I think one of my favorite parts of going back to school was the school shopping and like getting the school supplies, you know, having that that fresh pack of the Crayola colored pencils and that really cute folder with the puppies on it. So I really feel that, Virginia. I used to always love, even still now as an adult, I'm like, Ooh, it's back to school time. Like, what can I get for 97 cents at Walmart? <laughs> but mine has to be, so I am, like, not a morning person. It is just a known fact that I will sleep in until the last possible second. My mom knew that, and so, like, she never wanted the first day of school to be, like, the first day I'm, like, thrown out of my routine and, and waking up at, like, 6 in the morning. So the day before, she would always wake me up at whatever time I had to wake up at school and then she would take me to Krispy Kreme at like six in the morning to get donuts. And then we'd just kind of like drive around and pretend like we're going, you know, we're going <laughs> to school. And so that was always just like a fun, you know, like uh, I still to this day, that's probably the best way to get me out of bed is like the promise me breakfast. <laughs> donuts. Um, yeah. So that was always a fun memory with, with my mom and my sisters. That is, back to school. that is such a great memory. Wow. Kudos to your mom. That's so creative. I love that. Yeah. Well done. All right. Well, Lauren, like we said, it is a special back to school edition. So what do we have queued up for today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, my friend Whitney Monroe joins us to discuss the balancing act of her son's school from home with her job and how extended time at home can be damaging to young people's mental health. Plus, heritage education policy expert Lindsay Burke joins us to discuss how the pandemic may change the future of education for years to come. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. So for this next segment, I am so excited. We are joined by a dear friend of mine, Whitney Monroe. She is the president of Walden Strategies. And she, you know, she's just been active in conservative politics for such a long time. And most importantly, she is a beloved wife and mother. Whitney, welcome to the show. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. So it is back to school time. You have a seventh grade son who is going to be learning from home, at least for some time this fall. So I want to start kind of what was spring semester like and what is it like for you to have a teenager in the home all the time now? <laughs> oh, loaded question. So <laughs> for us, 
the kids here where we live, we live in Texas and we left for spring break that end of that first week of March. And it was the middle of spring break when all of this hit heavily. And so they actually never went back. They left for spring break, never went back to school. And we thought at the time, well, two weeks, three weeks of this, let's clear out the virus. They'll be back. And so we were actually very relaxed and optimistic when the first round of virtual learning started. Um, There were a lot of kinks for us. Uh, The systems that they had in place, of course, weren't prepared for thousands of students to log in at the same time every day. Um, The technology in our house and our own bandwidth wasn't ready for two adults working from home plus a student doing full-time school. So we ran into some bumps and some meltdowns. Uh, We had uh, quite a few times where assignments would get completed and they wouldn't upload or they would disappear off of the iPad. And uh, so we'd learned a lot of patience and grace. And then at some point, it just started to feel like it was never going to end. At the end of every week, we'd get another email that says, look, we're going to be closed for another week and another week and another week. And so it felt like the teachers didn't have a chance to prepare longer term with long term at home lessons and long term plans because it was week to week for a while. Um, and like I said earlier, they they have still haven't been to school. So since the first week of March, these kids have been home working with us. Um, it's a little crazy, <laughs> but we've gotten to know each other really well in ways we wouldn't have before. My son is 13 now, and he used to dream of being homeschooled. Riley would say, oh, mom, just homeschool me. It'll be so much easier. And now he literally is horrified at the idea that they won't go back to school. So we've killed the homeschool bug in our house at least. <laughs> um, more power to all of the moms and dads who do that. I respect you so much. I am not capable of what that would take. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a balance of grace and patience and recognizing that your day is never going to go the way you intended it to. Um, because you know, between technology or I don't understand how to do this math problem or what does this instruction really mean? Or I can't access this file while you're on a Zoom call for your work or <laughs> you've got a big, big paper project due the next day for a client. Um, it's, it's an amazing balancing act. So Whitney, I mean, gosh, you I think you so perfectly expressed some of those frustrations that parents all over the country are feeling of just having kids home and problems with technology and trying to navigate all of this. But you're you're looking at another, you know, potentially whole semester of, you know, your son learning from home. Are you worried that he's going to fall behind academically? Yes. In fact, um, at the end of the spring semester, where every parent, I feel like, just got to this point in the spring where we gave up. We're like, all right, this isn't working. Where There's no comprehension. The assessments were all missing. Kids did not you know, they didn't take any of the information that they were learning virtually and process it. And so I feel like we're starting back where we were in March, not in a traditional, even back to school, let's just review a few things from last year. There needs to be an entire reteaching of that spring semester. And so they're already behind. And then starting virtually this fall, the rules are a little different. The states have put different requirements on school districts for what they have to do with students academically this fall. And it's a learning curve just to get those systems in place for teachers, let alone learning. And so I am very concerned that the knowledge that he has, the knowledge gaps that will exist, but also for a lot of kids who don't have parents that are at home with them right now. The reality is there's a lot of people who had to go back to work and their kids are at home or they're not doing at-home learning because they don't have the systems in place to do it themselves. And so you're going to have thousands of kids at different levels because they have different levels of access at home to help uh, with big knowledge gaps. Yeah, that's such an interesting point, Whitney. I think we think a lot about 
you know, the little kids, like the second, third graders who can't be left alone. And we think a lot about the high schoolers who, who can be left alone. But, you know, your son is just kind of in this place where, you know, you could probably run to the store, leave him for most of the day, but he really can't be by himself all day. No, he can't. And not in the situation where, you know, if the Wi-Fi goes out, he can't fix it. You know, if the the apps shut down yesterday, actually his iPad that's required for school stopped charging altogether. And we had to do a quick doctor fix and figure out why it wasn't charging because it was at 11 percent and he had to be on a Zoom call. They can't troubleshoot those things at this age by themselves. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, you just think of all the parents who, you know, have to work and they might have to leave a 13 year old at home, which is legal, but they're just not set up for success. Well, and we've heard stories even in our community of the 16 and 17 year olds who need to be doing their high school coursework. They're responsible for facilitating the learning of their elementary and middle school siblings. And so you've got this person who might be in algebra two and English three, and they have hard classes to take as a high schooler. And they're also trying to make sure that their third grade sibling can read the instructions and is on their Zoom because mom and dad do have to work. And so it's putting some of our children in a really tough spot to balance their own learning and their siblings learning. Wow, Whitney, I mean, that is so intense. <laughs> Gosh, you just feel for those kids that are, are in that place. Let's talk for a moment um, about mental health, because I think as a parent, you're kind of weighing these things of like, okay, obviously, I, I don't want my child getting COVID and getting sick. Uh, but <laughs> at the same time, I know that it's really important for them to have that social interaction. Um, so, you know, where where are you with kind of processing that um, of mental health versus, you know, making sure that your child doesn't get COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. So you know, to my knowledge and after reading and doing a lot of research, kids, yes, they can contract the virus, but it's at much lower levels and much less lethal levels. And they actually don't spread it at the levels that adults spread to one another. So when I have the opportunity to send my son back to school full time in person, I will do so. I feel completely comfortable with making that choice. And I do so because of what you mentioned, mental health is very, very important. And we have had kids home since March across the country. Um, and yes, their learning gaps, those are big and I'm worried about that. But more so, we have a situation where kids are in a world that they, you know, it's completely different than anything we've ever felt before. There's fear. Um, when you tell kids you can't go around your friends and you can't go to school and you can't participate in your sports, they start to wonder why. What's going on? Should I be afraid of something? Why are the adults all freaking out? Um, and then they start missing out on big milestones. You had no graduation ceremonies, no proms, no spring sports. Now we're looking in some areas of the country, no fall sports. Uh, when you take all of those normal life experiences away, it leaves a kid's brain to wonder and they're not prepared for to process all of that. And so I want to make sure that Riley, that's my son, uh, that he has the chance to go and do as much as normal as possible as soon as it is safe. Um, because the, the mental health effects are massive. He's an only child, so he doesn't have siblings that he can just go be a normal child and play with. Um, so we made the decision as a family when our governor, Governor Abbott, opened summer camps this summer. We sent him to two summer camps because we thought he has to have the chance to run and play and be a kid and let out some of this aggression and do things that kids would normally do because he was starting to get almost lethargic of like, oh, you know, life is boring and things are boring. And we think that really helped. So what are your tips to other moms who might have some kids who have been in? What are ways that maybe if they don't have a summer camp, they can get out and be active? So first thing for parents, I would say don't 
reflect onto your children any concerns that you have. Let make sure kids feel safe. If they're at home with you, that make sure they feel safe in general. I think safety and security is really, really important. And the, when that starts to fade away for a kid, they start to question everything and everything else starts to look a little scary. And so just making sure when you talk to your children that you're talking confidently, everything's going to be okay, we're safe, and then create opportunities with people that you know, who also you are comfortable with. Everyone has a different level of comfort. Mine might be higher than other people's, but find people in your community, your neighbors, kids that your child went to school with, maybe they were on soccer with, who are also doing the same things you are, and create safe circles for play. Uh, opportunities in your community that you feel safe with are really important. And then, um, you know, talk to your kids about their concerns. I think that's the number one thing is ask, are you worried? How do you feel? What can I do to make you feel better? Kids are really smart. They'll tell you how they're feeling. And they'll also tell you maybe what would make them feel better. Go to the park, walk around, take opportunities to be outside and enjoy the things that are available to you. Um, But just I think the most important thing, and I've seen it so often, is parents who are freaking out cause their kids to freak out, and that's leading to some of these issues. So you as a mom or anyone who's caring for a child who's you know helping out, just making sure that that kid feels safe, happy, comfortable, and normal during the day is the most important. And you're involved uh, quite heavily with the PTA at, at your son's school. What are you hearing from other moms? Are they also kind of experiencing these same concerns of, of how do I how do I balance my child's mental health and, and academics? Yes. So really, it's interesting. Moms are facing that stress and that pressure of the choice, right? Am I making the right decision if I let my son play soccer or my daughter go to her ballet class? Because a lot of that stuff is opening up right now. Um, when school opens up full time for us, can I or should I send my kid? What are the things to do? There's a lot of stress for moms right now in making these tough choices. And that's what's shared the most is how did you come to your decision? What's making you feel safe or not safe doing this? Um, what is the school? going to do? You know, what are the protocols schools have in place to keep kids safe, but also encourage play and interaction? And you know, we had our first PTO meeting of the school year last night, and a lot of this came up between everyone. And we had one mom say, I'm willing to pay for all the PPE for the whole school if it means my kid gets to go back to school and be in class. And the principal kind of laughed and said, okay, do I have you on record? And she said, no, I'm serious. It's that important to me to get my kid back in school that I'm willing to buy PPE for everyone just so he gets to experience that. And I think you're feeling some of that desperation and frustration just across the board. Um, Something really important I think back to is when this all started, we were told this is just a temporary situation. Two weeks, three weeks, a month to flatten the curve. And I think everyone bought into that, especially here, the idea that, okay, we're going to make some sacrifices. But when you're five and six months into that same situation, I think the moms are starting to feel a little desperate and antsy and they're looking for, all right, this is coming to an end soon. So are there any tips that you have for moms or even for students who might be listening for how they can kind of navigate this fall well, uh, you know, stay in a good mental space, stay active? Yes. Turn off the news. <laughs> um, that's my number one piece of advice. Um, you know, if you if you listen to cable news all the time, you're only going to hear and see the negative. And I think if you get out in your community, take a walk you know, eat on a patio if you can, if you're not high risk, Uh, you know, do all those things, give yourself room to breathe. That's my first tip. Just 
like I said, turn off the news and detach from the crazy. The second is patience and grace. Give grace to each other. There's so many different places that people are mentally right now, and it's causing a lot of conflict. You know, every time you log into Facebook, people are arguing over whether you should wear a mask or not, whether you should send your kid to school or not. There's so much fighting going on. And separating yourself from that and just looking at the positives, not arguing with people who you know have good intentions but maybe have a different opinion of you will help you mentally de-stress and get through this fall. And then knowing that it's this way for everyone. The teachers don't know what's happening. The principals are doing their best. You're doing your best, assuming good intentions and being flexible to roll with the punches. Um, Our school district is saying that there's a chance we get to open in person on September 8th for the families who are comfortable with it. But keep in mind, we could be closing down for five days at a time every time there's a case. Well, that sounds pretty crazy and might be a little rocky. Breathe, know, and kind of expect the ups and downs that are coming and connect with other moms. You know, it's easy to feel isolated. And we're talking about how isolated kids can feel right now, but moms can feel isolated too. And find other moms in your community that you can talk to about this. Your sisterhood of friends doesn't have to be other moms. Talk to other women about how they're feeling and give yourself a community and a support system to reach out to that will just listen to you after you've had a bad day of your Zoom calls and your kids' Zoom calls and the homework and the everything else. And you're frustrated. You know, have people you can talk to about it and don't let it build up in you so that then you can be there for your kids as it starts to build up in them. Winnie, thank you so much for coming on. And this has been such an interesting conversation. And, and you know, you always inspire me as, as mom and a friend, but I'm so glad that you, you brought up kind of the importance of this sisterhood because it's something that I wanted to discuss with you on the show uh, because I hope nobody knows because it would be really creepy, but Wendy and I have been in a... I think it started as a Facebook chat between four or five women and it's now migrated over to to Google. And I mean, that sounds kind of like no big deal. Right. But the five women we've been there for the past five years through jobs and relationships. And I think it really is. And kind of reflecting having Whitney on the show, it's so important. Um, You know, as I I was looking to join heritage, they were the first people I told and, and wanted to get their input in. And they were, you know, they're there if, I have a bad day personally, or if I have a bad day at work or connections. So I just wanted to highlight on the show, A, to thank Whitney for, for being such a good friend to me. Um, you know, we, we had an awesome time at her wedding down in Mexico. You know, like, <laughs> there's just, it, it's so important for women to support women and connect with other women. That if you don't have that, or, or, or if you feel alone, whether that's because of schooling or, you know, if that's because of you're the only conservative on your liberal campus, you know, there's so many reasons why women feel alone and they feel like they're not good enough. I really encourage you to, to find other women, to just value those relationships. We have such a throwaway culture and I, there's stuff that Whitney and I don't agree on. There's stuff that Virginia and I don't agree on. There's there's lots of stuff that me and the other women in the, this chat don't agree on. But what we do agree on is that we all want what's best for one another. And we all really care about our country and, and just kind of, the same set of ideals. Um, so that, that was a long way for me saying, Whitney, thanks for joining us. And, and just thanks for being such a positive influence in my life. Oh, Lauren, thank you so much. I cannot tell you how much your friendship and the group friendship has meant to me. Y'all have been my sanity on so many occasions where I thought, oh my gosh, I just need to tell everyone I feel this way. Even when I know I'm overreacting or just feeling intense and I share it with y'all, you bring me back to a place of reality and and safety and encouragement. Um, and like you said, no matter if we agree or don't agree, you're always there. It's such a powerful thing and I'm so thankful for you. So thanks for having me on today. 
Now stay tuned because in just a moment, we will be chatting with Lindsay Burke about how COVID-19 might change education for years to come. But first, students, you are going back to school and whether online or in person at some point this fall, you're likely going to find yourselves writing a research paper or doing a research project. Did you know that the Heritage Foundation website has thousands of in-depth scholarly articles on topics ranging from the economy to voter fraud, military strength, and foreign relations? I used Heritage Research when I was a college student, and we hope that you all will take advantage of these free resources. You can head to heritage.org and click on the Explore the Issues tab to find any topic that you're looking for. We are so pleased to welcome our colleague, Lindsay Burke, back to the show. Lindsay is the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me back. So there are a lot of great and creative things that parents are doing this fall to ensure that their child is still learning and still receiving an education. And gosh, we really should applaud all, all these parents for their hard work. It's really impressive what we're seeing from parents in this season. They're such troopers. And you interact a, a lot with parents just because of your role in education research. What are you hearing from parents right now? Yeah, well, I, I think you nailed it, that parents have really been troopers through all of this. The pandemic has just completely upended education, both policy and just on the ground, what's happening in schools across the country in both the K-12 space and the higher ed space. And so parents immediately in the spring became um, accidental homeschoolers, right? Everybody had to homeschool. And I think a lot of families thought that it would just be for the spring, right? Schools across the country were closed down, public schools due to the pandemic, and public schools had largely started doing what we've been referring to as crisis online learning, and so I think a lot of families thought this is going to go on throughout the spring, but districts will sort of figure this out, get their sea legs, and we'll be back on track in the fall. Well, that hasn't been the case for a lot of school districts across the country. Something like the count changes every day, but about 22 out of the 25 largest school districts across the country are going to remain closed uh, as the school year kicks off, closed to in-person instruction. So they're going to con continue to do this crisis online learning. And so when, you know, we talk about parents being troopers during this time, they really are because they've had to navigate this world in short order. And they have really demonstrated perfectly civil society in action by banding together in their neighborhoods with other families, pulling together resources, and doing things like pandemic pods, which is just so exciting to me to see that proliferate and to think about how that could really shape the future of K-12 education moving forward. Yeah, so uh, Lindsay, I want to discuss these pods a little bit further and really kind of the creative thinking that parents really did with, with no time to create these and how will these affect the future of schooling even when the pandemic is over? Yeah, so that's a $64,000 question, right? How will it, what long-term effects, I guess I should say the $150,000 question because that's about what we spend to get a kid from kindergarten through high school these days. Wow. It's about $150,000 per kid. Wow. Uh, so keep that in mind. Um, so it's a $150,000 question, right? What will this do long-term to the delivery of K-12 education? So one data point 
that I've been pointing out is uh, the homeschooling community. If you look at homeschoolers pre-pandemic, we had about 1.8 million kids K-12 aged who were homeschooling before the pandemic hit. So that's about 3% of the population. I think that's an important number to keep in mind because pandemic pods do look a little bit like homeschooling. And so in order for us to know what the long-term impact could be, we should really know where we started in terms of families who are crafting their own education experience for their child. So even if post-pandemic, when this all starts to wind down, even if we only have 6% of families that continue doing pandemic pods or micro-schooling, that's still double the number of families who were homeschooling before the pandemic hit. And so that could really shake things up. It certainly means that parents will uh, be directing their children's learning to a greater extent than we've ever seen before. It means much more education freedom. But I have a feeling we're going to see more than just a 6% permanent uptick. I am optimistic that we will hit double digits in the near term and then much more beyond that. And, and that's because it's working well for families. I mean, if you look at pandemic pods, we're talking small class size, right? Families are pulling together, you know, four to 10, maybe 12 students in a pandemic pod. It's self-paced, it's mastery uh, based. And so a student is mastering content before they move on to new content, as opposed to seat time, which is how the current system is structured. The public education system is more worried currently about fulfilling seat time rather than learning uh, goals being met. And so that's really important. Uh, and it's also things like facilitating field trips, uh, all kinds of interesting options that pods are putting out there. And I, I think families are going to want that long term. So do you think that maybe with you know more and more families, even when the pandemic is over, starting to say, oh, I don't know that I want to put my child back in public education. How do you think that could potentially, uh, and hopefully for good, affect education as a whole and specifically public education? Would we see some positive changes come from that? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And on uh, something that you said a second ago about families, whether they will want to return to the public system, this is the other benefit of moving toward pods or even just families all being at home right now as a result of the pandemic and having to really direct their children's learning is they're seeing, they're doing a deep dive into what their public schools were teaching their kids before the pandemic. And so it's given families the opportunity to really assess whether that's the content that they want their children learning moving forward. So that I think is another positive outcome is giving families the opportunity to to really be even more engaged with what their children are learning. And in terms of the impact long-term on the public system, this is an opportunity like never before to really rethink the delivery of K-12 education. And part of the reason that uh, so many students were not able to access learning uh, this spring and into this fall, so many reasons they didn't have that educational continuity is that dollars fund physical school buildings, dollars fund a system, and that system was shut down as a result of the virus. And so kids were shut out of learning as a result of the system being shut down. I think it has made everyone hyper aware, which is a great thing, of the need to rethink that model, to have public education funding, follow the student, to fund the child directly, and to follow that child to any learning option of choice. That could be a public school or it could be a charter school. It could be a pandemic pod. It could be a micro school. 
it could be many things, but having those dollars follow children makes our education funding system much more nimble in case there's ever another crisis like this moving forward, makes it much more resilient, and most importantly, makes it so that children are able to select into learning environments that are the right fit for them. I'm so glad you brought up that first point, Lindsay, because I think it's so interesting. You know, we talked last week about what they're teaching children in in sex ed in schools that, you know, teachers, they really mainly do want to teach online. I know some want to teach in in person, but one reason that they don't want to teach online is because they want to be able to continue to teach this transgender propaganda to the students, which is just crazy. Yeah, and we've seen a couple instances of... um, teachers, some teachers, this is not to paint teachers with a broad brush whatsoever, but we've seen a couple of instances online on Twitter, for example, of uh, teachers saying, well, don't, you know, make sure that parents aren't watching what we're teaching kids during the day since it's all online now. Uh, That's really unfortunate, but, you know, I think should be a wake-up call for a lot of families that they do need to take a close look at what's being taught. You know, it could be sex ed curriculum. It could be um, a lot of what is coming out of the 1619 project right now that some families might take exception with. Um, so there, there's a lot right now that's going on in the public system in terms of curriculum that parents uh, really should take this opportunity to reexamine. Lindsay, let's talk for just a moment um, about how how online education is maybe affecting um, more so families in in low income areas. I mean, are are you worried whether a family is low income or just you know it's a it's a two parent household where both parents are working, they don't have a lot of time to give to their child's education, uh, that we might see a lot of of this generation about six months to a year behind academically because kind of a, a, a patchwork school year in some ways. Yeah, it, it's certainly a concern, but that is why it is so critical that we immediately enable those families to find options for their kids. I mean, we spend about $15,000 per kid per year in the public education system across the country, on average, $15,000. Imagine if those families had access to that money, that kid with $15,000 in his pocket to pay for a private school that's open, right? Private schools are, are opening across the country. They're doing everything they can to open on time and safely. Imagine if he could take that $15,000 to a local private school, or imagine if he could control a portion of that money to pay for a private tutor to participate in one of these pandemic pods with other families in the neighborhood to hire a teacher of choice to hire a private tutor, um, to, to hire someone with content matter expertise who they know to teach. I mean, the possibilities really are endless when we think about disentangling public education financing from a rigid district assignment delivery model that is closed right now and not meeting the needs of these families. Well, and unfortunately, public schools, I feel like, are are coming out really not looking very good through this whole situation. Uh, you recently wrote a piece for the Daily Signal entitled, Districts Are Using Empty Schools as Expensive Daycares, and Taxpaying Parents Are Being Charged Twice. This Needs to End. Uh, explain a little bit what what you wrote in that piece and what you mean by the fact that some parents are now essentially having to pay uh, for their child's education twice this year. Yes. 
Yeah, and I talk about these as double dipping districts <laughs> because that's exactly what we're seeing, right? These are districts who have uh, created a situation. They have closed their doors. Families cannot access them. And yet they still get to keep their tax revenue, right? Your tax dollars still flow to those districts, even though they're not open to in-person instruction. They have put families in a bind. If you, you know, think about the uh, two parents who both might have to work outside of the home, right? That's, that's exactly it. I mean, these are families who are in a bind now because schools are closed to in-person instruction. And so they don't have that custodial component. And so some of these districts know this and they've said, well, we're going to keep your tax dollars, but we'll allow your child to reenter the school so they can be here during the day. You can go to work if and only if you pay us twice. In the case of Howard County in Maryland, they're uh, asking for $325 per child per week. Uh, Fairfax County in Virginia is talking about about $1,400 a month to do this. I mean, we're, we're talking about a tremendous amount of money. We're seeing this happen in, in Durham, North Carolina, and Gilbert, Arizona. And it's exactly what it sounds like, that school districts are really trying to charge twice. I mean, imagine being a private business and being closed at the moment. And not only are you still requiring your customers to pay for services that you're not providing, but you're charging them double. I mean, we wouldn't put up with it in any other segment of our lives. And yet this is what so many of these districts are doing right now. And it has really put parents in a bind. Yeah, man, I think $1,400. I live on in a nice apartment in Washington, D.C. And that I mean, that's my rent every month. How right. are families expected to, to come up with that money? And, and how it doesn't make sense even... With the virus, you know, kids can't be in there in class because they'll, they'll spread the virus, but they can go but to yes. the daycare. <laughs> right, right, right. They act as if it's like the academic component that spreads the virus, not being together. You're exactly right. <laughs> really wild. Well, Lindsay, I want to take just a second and talk specifically to any of our high schoolers who might be listening. And these are young people who, you know, they might actually be able to manage their own education pretty well. Uh they're old enough, they can, you know, follow along the lesson plans online. But also, there's a lot more weight, essentially, on their academic career right now, because their education performance could determine the college that they get into, or the amount of financial aid that is offered to them for a college. And I can speak from my own experience that as a high school student, I really needed to be in the classroom with the teacher in order to learn. So for any of our high school students learning from home, can you just give them a little bit of, of advice about how they can manage their education well this fall? Yeah, well, I've been seeing a lot of students uh, on social media talk about the fact that they are able to get through their content much more quickly um, at home, much more quickly than the way the district system has set up schedules throughout the day that they can get through all of their content in a day instead of two days or three days. And so that is something if you can buckle down, get through it, and then reserve some additional time for whatever extracurriculars you might be interested in. But also think about it like college, right? I mean, this is, you know, if you're a high school senior and you're thinking about going to college, this is more or less what college is like, right? It's much more self-directed. The onus is on you to really make sure that you're completing assignments and, you know, doing even more reading than what was assigned. So I think it's good preparation uh, in that regard. If we can think about it optimistically, maybe yeah. that's a silver lining, you know, pre-college in a way. But, you know, the other thing I would say is this is, again, 
why I really, really love the idea of pandemic pods, because you're not alone in a pod, right? You're with a group of other students. Uh, in some cases, you have a, a teacher, maybe even from the, the public school system or a private school or a private tutor. So you have that instruction from a, a live person that you can marry with the online content that you're learning. And then you also have the socialization of being around other students as well. So pods really check all of the boxes and hopefully provide a, a greater number of families moving forward with the opportunity to, to really craft what education looks like for them. And that's all I wanted in high school was to have like the same classes with all my friends. Like I, th- I think it sounds even more fun than, than regular school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess really in many ways, like high school students could just, you know, say, Hey, everyone this day of the week, come over to my house and we'll all do school together. Right. And, yeah. Um, and that's basically how pods are working, that they're rotating from home to home, which is great as well, but getting together, going through content that they're all working on collaboratively I mean, that's exactly right. It's it's a small, intimate setting and can really provide excellent socialization. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. We, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Now stay tuned for the crowning of our Problematic Woman of the Week and this week's Twitter poll. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? Every day, the Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. Webinar topics range from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinars and register, visit heritage.org events. Now, it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Teachers all over America. You know, I think teachers have been getting a bad rap lately. And, you know, there's there are some, probably more so the teachers' unions, who are not looking out for the interests of students, but I think the vast, 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 and I want to underline vast majority of teachers really want what's best for students, and they're struggling themselves. I know my my mother, she's a teacher, and I hope she's okay with me sharing this, but she's called me all week using very choice words, and she's so (laughs) upset with Zoom and the technology in her classroom, and, you know, she has to make it work, and she has to figure it out because she has kids every day. Yeah, gosh, it's so much. I have a roommate who's a teacher. I have many, many dear friends who are teachers. And like you say, Lauren, it is, it's so much, essentially, it's twice the workload that's being put on them because they're having to learn this entirely new way of teaching, manage all these things online, put, you know, lesson plans and all of this information online that they've never had to do before on top of then the normal grading and kind of all the normal stuff that comes with being a teacher. So teachers, you're incredible. You're our heroes. You're such an incredible support for young people. You're raising up the next generation. We applaud you and all your hard work in this crazy season. All right. It's Twitter poll time. Thanks for everyone who voted. These are so fun. Last week, we asked you all to tweet whether or not you feel comfortable flying on an airplane while the pandemic is continuing. 
And over 57% of you said, yes, you are comfortable flying on an airplane. You know, I find that actually, I was really surprised by that. Like, I find it kind of amazing that that many people are saying, yeah, absolutely, I would get on an airplane. I think I was more in the category that was like, yeah, it depends on the airline. Um, but that's great that so many people once again feel comfortable flying. So for uh, for this week, our question is, are you or your child or children going back to school and Options are online, in person, or through a pod or another like non-traditional school method. So we want to hear what you and or your children are doing. Yeah, I can't wait to see the results of this week's poll. But with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcast. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.